Welcome to the Emerging Women Podcast, where we hear from brilliant women leaders creating big change in the world. I'm Chantal Pirat, your host, and today we have a podcast from a very special guest who raised the roof at our last Emerging Women Live event with her powerful songwriting, storytelling, and movement making. Before we start our conversation with today's guest, I want to make sure that you know how to get more support from Emerging Women. If you head over to EmergingWomen.com, you'll find some amazing resources, including a free trial of our membership community. This is the place to learn from trailblazing thought leaders, industry experts, coaches, and mentors, all focused on helping you live the truth of who you are. You'll be joining a group of amazing women like you who want change for themselves and the world. And I personally lead our monthly Circle Up video calls where we all come together to work through our edges in leadership and life. Don't go it alone, sisters. Check out EmergingWomen.com and sign up for your free trial today. Today's guest is Milk, a.k.a. Connie Lim, the artist behind the goosebump-inducing anthem, Quiet, which captured the nation and the world when she premiered it with a live chorus in flash mob form at the 2017 Women's March. Her song has since gone viral, reaching over 15 million listeners all around the world. In this episode, Milk shares her lifelong journey from people pleaser to truth teller, and how she has personally worked her edge and overcome challenges to finally feel comfortable expressing the truth of who she is to the world. We hear firsthand how she came to organize an incredibly impactful moment-turned-movement rather than succumb to industry pressures to monetize the release of the single Quiet. And hear Milk's perspective on how speaking out can play a healing role in transforming shame and self-blame, both for herself and for others. It's all part of the Emerging Women ethos, so let's dive in and hear it from the singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and choir builder herself. Welcome to Can't Keep Quiet with Milk. Okay. Hello, everybody, and welcome, Milk, to the Emerging Women Podcast. Hi there. Hi. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited to be talking to you at long last. Yeah. I'm a big <laughs> fan. Thank you. I'm, I'm a- excited to talk to you. It's going to be fun. I think what we should do is start with your background. I mean, you're a pop star. You're a singer. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about that. So when we talk about what happened at the Women's March, there's a little bit of a background on who you are. Yeah. So who is yeah. Milk and why Milk? And when did Milk get created? Yeah, so I'll start with um, why Milk and when did it get created? Um, so Milk is my last name backwards attached with my first two initials. So um, M-I-L is Lim backwards. Um, that's my last name. And Connie Kimberly um, are my first two names. So Connie Kimberly Lim. So it's a little bit of a puzzle, but um, yeah, if you scribble up my last, my last name and my first two initials, you get milk. And I decided to do this 
about two and a half years ago, I have been a musician um, in Los Angeles, learning the ropes of the music business and the world of the industry for about almost nine years now. Um, after I graduated college, um, I had studied pre-med and pre-business and pre-law. So I ended up graduating with a pre-law degree. and But I knew that I was going to come to Los Angeles and pursue music. And so the first six years were a lot of me, first of all, just learning how to even meet people that could give me opportunities. And But the foundation of my process in the first six years was really gaining the confidence to just be me, to simply be uh, rather than keeping up the whole habit of pleasing others and of trying to be something for everyone that was in my life, including my family. Um, Mm -hmm. My, my family wasn't quite pleased with my decision to be a musician. And now we can joke about it. And my dad's always like, I told you physician, not musician, you know, (laughs) Um, and even, yeah. So, you know, at first when I graduated and, you know, I understood because my parents immigrated here from China and they spent so much of their time and energy to get my brother and sister and me these amazing opportunities. And so they were really scared. I think their first impression of musicians, like you're going to do drugs and you're going to be an addict and you're just going to like, they had this image of, I don't know, the the really rock and roll industry of the 60s. Right, right. <laughs> um, and so I think I, I unconsciously would try to please them even through my music, which was supposed to be my own endeavor. And then that ricocheted to trying to please new managers. Uh-huh. And yeah, and so I just, I remember even, you know, some opportunities, my parents, well-meaning and and me also listening, they're like, you don't know best, you have to listen to the experts. And that's kind of the mentality um, that I was brought up with, because it's about like studying, right? It's like the teacher knows best, learn from the teacher. But what I realized pretty quickly after a couple of opportunities, like doing the voice, um, the first season of it, I was like, that philosophy really doesn't work. I need to trust my own intuition and my own instincts. And therefore, I'm going to start this project, Milk, and it's mine. And I remember my dad hating it. He's like, I just hate the name. I just wish you would keep your own name. And it was very symbolic. And I said, I love you, Dad, but I have to do this. Um, And so... So then I started embarking on this journey of, you know, not caring about other people's opinions. And the only thing I care about is writing the truth. And so what are my, whatever my truth was. And then that brought me to writing um, Quiet. Uh, Quiet um, was a song that I wrote at the end of 2015. And it just was that song that, I truly let go of any expectations because there are industry rules with songwriting like, oh, you know, try not to leave out a demographic, try 
try to not speak so specifically or say things that will offend people. And, right. you know, I have, you know, yeah. I have, like, try not weird... to be an activist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For try instance. to keep, yeah. yeah, keep in the middle and just please both sides. And that's exactly what I needed to learn not to do because I was doing that for my whole life. Um, so just before we get into the quiet, so you were at that point, did you get, I know you're with Atlanta records now, which is a pretty major label. I mean, people, you know, this is a very short trajectory to getting signed on by a major label. So you said that it was, you know, just several years ago and when did they sign you on? And like, what was that history in terms of like your managers and things like that? When did that start to crystallize? Because people spend their whole lives gigging in coffee shops and you yeah, just went yeah. and you just like skyrocketed into, you know, professional music management and a label. You know, I um, got signed with Atlantic this March, okay. this February, and I got my management this March and this February. I got my lawyers this March and this February. Um, right after the video went viral for Quiet is when all the ducks started lining up in a row. I can say that before that, it was eight years of performing, like you said, in coffee shops, in hotel lobbies, uh, in small clubs in Hollywood and all over the states to rooms of 50 to 150 people. And I would sigh with relief if, you know, I brought 70 people. It's like, okay, at least the room's not empty or stuff like that. Because being a singer-songwriter independently is really difficult and how to break through the noise and also how to break through the noise with just sincere music. And I shouldn't even use the word just because sincere music is so important. But, you know, I was coming up during the time of the Chainsmokers and uh, a lot of electronic dance music and my music I felt at that time was getting trampled on by stuff that was perhaps fancier a little more trendy and I just I'm not good at chasing trends that way I think I thrive in just creating what moves me so that wasn't really translating but I do think that once November 2016 happened the consciousness of the the Americans has shifted a tad and we're wanting the truth in all different formats because we're being fed a lot of things that we're not even sure are true. (laughs) Right. Right. And so let's, so you've, you're gigging, you're going all over the place. You're actually making a living as a musician. I mean, people, even to get beyond, you know, to 70 people, 150 people, I would say that that is, that's a success story. And, you know, you're, you're there. And then what, what happened? Cause I, you know, when we talked before, it sounded like you weren't exactly like, you know, Bob Dylan out there. Like I'm going <laughs> to, you know, usurp the existing government or like it didn't have that feel to it. And yet the women's March came and what made you decide to perform quiet at the women's March? I think that the song was bubbling within me because I wrote it in the end of 2015. My first reaction to the song was just a sigh of relief because I wanted so badly to write a song that could encapsulate all that, all that, all those feelings I feel inside of me when I'm, I feel like I'm not being heard 
on being kind of oppressed and so much of my life felt that way. And so I felt like this breath of fresh air. And so I started noticing the, the like uprise of the feminine energy in, in subtle and not subtle ways from my girlfriends and I being more supportive with each other through our language um, to billboards of Supergirl, the TV show, and bridesmaids, like an all-female cast with these female writers and Amy Poehler. Like, mm-hmm. In the entertainment industry, there's this uprise of the feminine energy. And, you know, my boyfriend always teases me and he thinks it's great. Because like, um, I would always, you know, as we're driving on 405, I would point out the billboards. And I'm like, see, hun, like the feminine energy is emerging. Don't you see it? And he always chuckles. He's like, yes, I see it. Um, and so beginning of 2016, throughout 2016, I was like, I think it's time to release quiet. You know, it's the, it's the, it's just our time. I can feel it. It's surging. And my management at the time, I had managers, um, in 2016 that I'm no longer with, but they were, you know, they had such great intentions, but you, they were thinking the old school model in that, okay, you have this song that we feel could be great for radio, hold it, don't release it, and let us try to get a label to believe in you as well so that they can fund it and promote it and all that. And so I was like, okay, I'm open to strategy. But eventually it just turned into, okay, we think you should change your name. We think you should maybe think about a different style. And it just was like, okay, so you basically want me to change completely, but keep the song. And so I was like, okay, there's a problem here because you view me as a songwriter and not as an artist is my vision. And this all culminated during the time of the election. Um, so the election happened and then I had this realization my management didn't truly see what I was trying to do. And at that time, I didn't even truly see what I was trying to do either. It wasn't until I left the management where I felt so alone. And then, you know, my boyfriend was like, you know, talking to me and I told him, I was like, I feel like I've lost my team. And he looks at me and he's like, you are the team. You are everything that you need to be to get to where you need to go. And then everything just kind of clicked for me at that moment. And I said, yes, I am the team. I don't need to wait for anyone. I'm going to create a music video, produce the music video that's up on YouTube now with a director, I found the director, we created the concept, we did the whole thing, I self-funded. I'm not waiting for anyone anymore. Trump has won and I'm so confused and I can only do what I can, what I know to funnel my frustrations and my fear and my hope and my, you know, my desires into my art. And quiet was my buoy. It was this buoy in the middle of a mad storm. And and I realized that people were also coming and swimming towards my buoy with me because they're like, yes, I want to do this. So like even on the music video set, we filmed a music video in December and I could feel the energy. People were crying on set. Crew members were crying. They're like, I'm so lost. I don't know what to do. And it's interesting because the song lyrics were written for me in my journey with my abuse and like being misunderstood for so long. And then it became other people's songs. And I was like, oh, people are kind of attaching to this about what's happening in the world now. Because I was thinking just about the feminine movement, but it also related to our election and so many other things. I was like, this is kind of crazy. Like, I feel like something's happening with this. And and I thought, you know, I have family members that are Trump supporters. And it, it's hard 
because we, you know, don't see eye to eye, but we love each other so much. And, but, you know, I also had this side of it. I was like, you know, I want to show that I'm not just this liberal that stands aside, doesn't do anything. I'm going to go to Washington. I'm going to march with these women. I want to meet women there. And I want to give something that I know how to give. And, you know, I could pass out CDs, but that seemed cumbersome and self-promoting. So I thought, okay, maybe I'll provide an experience for people. Um, so I created the um, the seven-part harmony that um, I would then recruit girls to sing with me. And I thought, you know, if I want people to keep in touch and to learn more about the song, I don't want to just be holding up my own sign, milkmusic.com. I want to make this about the movement. So then I created a whole website, ICan'tKeepQuiet.org. So I went on Squarespace, I paid the $11 a month, I started designing a website, and I shared my story on there. This is why I'm doing this. And um, and then, yeah, and then I started recruiting women from Los Angeles, and I didn't really hear any response because this was, um, the, I think people weren't sure if they were going to fly to D.C. So I said, you know what, I'm going to shift plans. I started researching groups in D.C., and I started getting replies um, from two particular groups. And that ended up becoming the original I Can't Keep Choir. I Can't Keep Quiet Choir in D.C. And um, I, I basically recorded each part of the harmony, the seven-part harmony. I sent it to both groups. I tried to coach them through it. I asked them, what voices do you have? Who do we assign to each part? Okay, let's talk us through. Does this make sense? How does arrangement look? Because I wrote it all out by hand because I didn't have time to learn the computer program. So I was a little bit embarrassed that it was just a handwritten score. But at the same time, I was like, we don't have time. And so then I just sent it out. And then people learned it. And what I've learned from this whole process is that movements are messy and they're not perfect. And um, there's a lot of rough edges, like <clears throat> my handwritten music and not having a full rehearsal with all of the women. It's just kind of like, okay, if the intention's there and we all want to do this and we all are doing it for a greater cause, it just comes together, even if the details are a little messy. And I know that can drive people crazy and it can make me feel anxiety, but I've learned through this whole process that it's, um, it can be a messy process, Mm -hmm. but a beautiful one. (laughs) And so then you were, you were there, you all came together. I mean, I probably, how many, then it was recorded, right? And then it went viral. And I must have been at least like, you know, 2000 views myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I mean, I'm serious. Like I could not believe I was crying. I, it was just so moving, but you ended at, and it's still going. People are still passing this thing around. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. Huh? I, I um yeah, th- there were 25 women with me and um we all met. Everyone met on the morning of the march. The main stage presentation was starting at 9 a.m. So we all agreed. I looked at the map and I saw, okay, here's the main stage. Where's the subway station? Okay, where's the main point we can meet? I said, oh, okay, here's a McDonald's. Everyone meet at the McDonald's at 8 a.m. 
and we'll just flash mob as many times as we can as we walk towards the main stage. And then I was very conscious of protecting people's experiences so that they could have their experience with their loved ones, you know, because I I understood this was going to be a historic event. So I thought, okay, I don't want to, you know, monopolize these people's time, these these volunteers who are singing with me. I'm sure they want to march with, like, the their mothers and their sisters and stuff. So we, we spent an hour flash mobbing, and it was so funny because all the girls didn't want to leave. You know, at first, all the emails going around late December, like, okay, well, I want to march with my mom, so let's make sure we're done by this time. And this time, I was like, okay, I totally respect that. But by the time we were singing our last flash mob, we all looked at each other and everyone's like, we don't want to separate. Um, uh, So it was really, really loving. And I just was, one of my favorite parts of the whole process was observing how we worked together because it was basically three different entities. There was the George Washington Sirens. They were this college group and there was me and my friend who flew out from LA and then there were the ladies from Capital Blend who are these um women in there like working women and so we all had our own leaders of each group we all have different personalities we've never met each other but our conversations on the phone to plan this project were beautiful everyone was just so conscious of each other's personalities and said, okay, well, how do you usually lead your rehearsals and how, you know, we were so um, respectful of each other. And actually, I think that's the most incredible part of all this is that, you know, we didn't know each other and then we just came together and we all like have this deep love for each other now. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I recent yesterday, I was just talking to one of the original flash mobbing singers and, um, it's just this eternal bond, you know, and I, I actually, I've learned through, through the video becoming viral, I've met a lot of amazing um, activist women and organizers and social change workers. And one of the things I've learned from one of the women is that uh, she did a study about small groups and what types of small groups people um, last the longest. And so she researched a bunch of different types of um, associations and clubs and stuff. And what she found were that the three groups that would last the strongest or create the strongest bonds and get together the most were uh, 12-step programs, um, book clubs, and then the third were choirs. And yeah, isn't that incredible? So there's a, there's a, there's a part of me that is knows that there's something deeper to all of this. Like my role in this movement is to bring people together. And I think with the song, people were starting to flash mob together, strangers were in London and Australia, Sweden, Ghana. And I just hope, and I'm manifesting that these women and men too, feminist men, um, are now creating bonds and doing more things together and building confidence because I think that's that's my role in this movement is to help people heal themselves so they can heal each other and eventually, hopefully, that can ricochet and become this grander change where we rise to heal our society. Thank you. 
Hello, lovely listeners. I want to pause for a moment here to make sure that you know how you can get even more access to this type of inspiration and support. Emerging Women has its own membership community where you get teachings from incredible female leaders and coaching support directly from me, as well as other brilliant members within the Emerging Women Tribe every month. If you are ready to go deeper into your own leadership and emerging journey, head over to emergingwomen.com for a free trial of our membership community. We've truly designed it as a hub for women like you who want to create change in the world. Don't go it alone, sisters. Head over to emergingwomen.com forward slash membership and start your free trial today. Now, let's get back to our conversation. it is about singing specifically choirs i mean so you're reading books together i get that because you're you're learning and you're reflecting on yourself right mm-hmm. i'm curious about the singing what do you think it I, is about singing i feel for me personally i that I, when i sing i feel like i'm freeing a part of my soul i feel like i can fly as a part of my inside self that is able to soar into the frequencies, into the air. And um, there's a sense of vulnerability because when I sing, I am exposing myself. And so I feel that way too. I remember when I was younger, I'd be nervous to sing in front of each uh, other people because it was exposing this really personal side of me. And I feel like a lot of others do relate to that feeling as well. And so when we all sing together, we're all revealing ourselves and we're trusting each other that we're not going to be like, you know, your voice is so gross. You know, we're just accepting each other and we're and the, the physical feeling of harmony is very healing. It's, it's like taking sound baths. Um, however, we're creating the sound. So it's very interactive and visceral and communal and I imagine that in in our ancestors when they were gathering around bonfires and and singing together, that was a that was a form of bonding and creating trust mm-hmm. with each other as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now you know it's interesting because Eve Ensler comes to mind and mm-hmm. her whole V Day. For yeah. the last several years, um, she's been mobilizing groups around the world to dance for yeah. uh, women's liberation um, and the end of uh, violence against women. And it's been like hugely successful. I remember one year, I think it was 2015, absolutely every country participated around the world. They all wow. had a demonstration and uploaded a video. And it was just staggering. And now I believe um, that people are doing I Can't Keep Quiet Anymore. They're doing the quiet song in different countries. Tell us more about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, once the video went viral, I I realized that there was something to this because I, I couldn't quite understand why the song had gone viral yet. But I knew that. I'm very, my strength and my weakness is that I'm a very open and kind of trusting person. And so what I thought was, oh man, these people want to sing as well. I know they want to sing. I saw the tweets and all that and people were asking for sheet music. And so I said, okay, I'm going to release my, my handwritten composition as like, if you can see through that, 
go ahead, read it. And I put it on a Google Drive link and I publicized it and people started downloading it all over the world. Um, even now I see downloads, there's been thousands of downloads. So, um, I can imagine there's thousands of choirs learning the song. Um, and so the magic of the internet is that now movements can happen so quickly because within a few days, there were a group singing the song. Um, and then, uh, I think was, I, I need to check the timing, but it was like two weeks or so or three weeks. Then there was a 1500 person flash mob in um, Gothenburg in Sweden and then Stockholm in Sweden and each were you know, around 1500 people and there's a flash mob in Ghana and there's a flash mob in Australia and um, women singing in the Philippines and um, and then Philadelphia and San Francisco it just ricocheted all over the world and I was I was so moved and constantly crying <laughs> and, yeah. um, and then people started making their own versions and high school started creating orchestra versions and, um, yeah. And then people started writing their own arrangements and then sending them to me and saying, Hey, if you want to share this with your fans, like they can use this arrangement too. So then it became this crowdsourced art form. So I started publicizing other people's arrangements of it and it just became this, beautiful community and um I think that that really inspired me so then I was like you know what let's do an I can't keep quiet day where all of us activate on the same day and we manifest for peace and um, for healing and so that was April 8th and I unknowingly scheduled it that that month but that was also that's also a sexual assault month which is really interesting so I'm, my wheels are already turning for next year. How are we going to activate? And it's probably time now to plan if we want to do things um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. It, and so people, again, mobilized that day. And even in London, this one group rented a double-decker, one of those red British double-decker buses, and they put I Can't Keep Quiet on the side, and they just drove around town with their megaphone singing the song. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, that's so funny because that's like – that's super Chinese. I lived in uh, Taiwan and China for two years, and yeah. uh, that reminds me of, like, the funerals where they would have these trucks – go around and there, there would just be people wailing like they would sing but they were like they were called wailers yeah and they totally would, uh -huh. you know? so interesting right <laughs> oh it's just funny so so sexual assault month did not know that um i'm happy to have mm -hmm. that on my radar we should totally know that at emerging women and i'm curious you had mentioned something before about abuse is there a personal connection with that yes there is i it took me so long to even share that. I think, you know, for a lot of my life and it still makes me so like, there's a, uh, it's emotional to even think about how long I carried this weight and blamed myself. Um, so when I was 14, I was, um, I was forced into, you know, sexual acts I wasn't ready for. And when I went to my family for help, you know, they, they're, they do, you know, our parents all do our, their best, you know, I, my parents really truly did their best. And, um, I think that it was such a shock to them that they, it, it became this traditional shaming process of, um, 
you know, it was, how did I make this happen? And Uh how could I have? And so for years from age 14 to I think 25 is I, I blamed myself and I can't even explain how many specific moments throughout my entire life every day I would somehow subconsciously punish myself or, yeah, yeah, it's just so um, incredible how that happens. And it's very sad. I think about my younger self and I just want to give her a hug. It's like, it wasn't, how are you to know, you know? And I, I, I'm glad that I've come to this realization because, you know, even a couple of days ago, my really dear friend, she just came out of a a 10 year relationship and, she was talking about how it wasn't physical abuse, but it was kind of mental, emotional control. Yeah. And she didn't realize it was happening. And now she feels this relief, but she also feels this pain. And then could see on her face that she was kind of blaming herself a little bit. She even said something. She's like, yeah, I, I, it's crazy how I just didn't see this. And I had to stop her. And I said, you know, it, please don't blame yourself because there's no way you could have seen it if you just didn't know what it looked like in the first place. And so now, you know, and you're learning and you're progressing from it, but you were just being someone with an open heart and trying to love someone. And there were just these different forms of abuse that you didn't know. And that's not your fault. And I think a lot of women don't hear that. And we, we resort to things like, oh, maybe I was too nice, I was too naive or different things like that. And so I had a lot of that guilt in me. Mm. And, um, and I think that being so young and going through a relationship like that, that was my first relationship, I didn't know how to decipher between unhealthy versus healthy. Mm-hmm. I felt, I, I only realized in my late 20s is that oh, that, that is unhealthy and weird behavior. Because then I started from age 14 till then to my late 20s, I was attracting that type of relationship because that's what I knew. Because I didn't ever get to heal or reflect on the experience because I was too busy being shamed or shaming myself. Um, so I think about that a lot and how how much how much um, energy I spent um, putting myself down and allowing others to make me think that as well. But I didn't really know there's any other paradigm until, yeah, until my late twenties. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you wrote quiet um, in response to that, but also in response, I'm sure to that feeling of, Mm -hmm. you know, stuffing it down and trying to accommodate the shame that had been implanted Mm -hmm. in you. And what is the power of speaking out? And, you know, on one hand, I get some feedback from people that say, listen, you know, this is the way it is. We need to move on. We need to develop grit. And, and on the other hand, there's a lot to be said for actually saying and sharing our traumatic experiences, however big and small, right? Because some people are just, you know, they're, they're the victims of unconscious bias at work, right? Exactly. Um, and so there's a spectrum mm-hmm. here. And yet it feels like speaking out has not just therapeutic benefits, but we're trying to create systemic change. So how has it helped you personally to speak out? And what are you seeing in terms of the power of this message to women all over the world? 
I think that speaking out is also another form of grit. It is actually, for me personally, one of the scariest forms of grit because I know how to put my head down and work hard and, and you know, survive um, trials and tribulations. I know how to do that. I think women and, and men also have, we have to, that's a part of life. Life, life can bring a lot of challenges and we learn how to how to work through that. And I think that it's easy for us to um, kind of just keep moving forward and walk this like straight path, but we also need to look upwards and grow and ascend. And um, I think that speaking out is a key for us right now because we are going through this culmination of capitalistic and patriarchal ideals and it's coming up against that's why I feel like women are really rising because um, we want to protect and that's our job. We protect and we nourish and we, we um, really do the things that perhaps a lot of other people don't want to put the energy into doing it because we care. And so we're coming head to head with these opposing forces and um, it is, it is tempting for, I think the human brain to start blaming and categorizing, creating boundaries and borders um, between each other when we're in a time of fear and feeling like there's um, not enough to go around. Um, And so then we start categorizing people and then wanting to simplify and keep people out, push people out. Um, And what I think is going to be a crucial part of our healing is storytelling And um, not just me storytelling, but every single person, because literally everybody has a very deep and rich story, whether they realize it or not. There's just so many intricacies that go into creating a human being. And, um, And there's so many different types of people. And what I'm seeing with the internet is that the internet is creating a space for younger people to be exposed to transgender people, to be exposed to intersectional feminists like me, like a Chinese American um, activist and singer. And, and so these are these new types of people that people are seeing um, on their screens. And so they can learn, Oh, there's a person that can be Muslim and also bisexual. Oh, there's a Chinese person that isn't, just a doctor, she can be a musician. And the more we share all our micro stories, then we see in the macro that we're all the same because we're all different. And then if we can see that, (laughs) um, then we can start accepting and kind of just surrendering to the fact that we're all as one. And maybe the ego can start diminishing. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's a long, it's a long game thing, but I think it's happening. I can see it around me. I can see it in television shows, a lot of different types of humans and, and the younger generations of kids that are watching us go through this are, I think more empathetic and more aware and conscious. Um, and so, um, if we can heal the adults who have maybe calcified into prejudices and just show through example, Um, And that is literally through sharing and speaking um, our truth. So Mm -hmm. it's really, I think it's really important. (laughs) Yeah. 
Well, I'm curious now circling back to the beginning of our podcast when you talk about your parents and and like I said, I, I'm real f- familiar with the culture because I was there for over two years. Uh, you know, the heads down approach and, you know, don't ask too many questions. I mean, that comes from just, you know, back before Mao, but that made a big imprint, right? And mm-hmm. um, And so that culture of you know, just do what you're told, follow the rules and work hard, work hard and be smart, of course. Right. But now here you are, your your new album is going to be called Black Sheep, correct? Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. And that is the antithesis of the culture <laughs> that you were uh, brought up and that you come from. So I'm curious to see what you're speaking out, what you're can't keeping quiet has done um, full circle for your family and your parents. My parents have really come around. I think sometimes I'm in awe of the boundaries I've set with them. I'm like, wow, this is so healthy that I just don't even know what to do with myself. Where, you know, for example, when, you know, in the traditional Chinese culture, there's a lot of, um, pressure for women and men, but a lot for women to be very thin, you know, Mm -hmm. literally every day I would hear my elders and my, you know, people, women I'm supposed to look up to talk about how they need to lose weight, how they're looking a little older or the fear of, um, not looking beautiful because that was such a requirement. And I remember being told when I was younger that, you know, small women with big eyes and small mouths are beautiful because they don't speak up and disturb things as much and they observe and they watch and see what other people need. And I remember hearing that when I was in middle school and just cringing. I was like, really? Um, But I didn't know how to express that cringing until now. But um, (laughs) um, I think my my mother's very aware of how I resist that, um, that type of mentality because I... I tell her time and time again, it just doesn't feel freeing and empowering. It feels like limiting. Um, and so she she's tried her best. I think she watches herself when she's around me to not put herself down as much because she knows I hate that. Like she knows that um, I really get very sad when I see the woman um the, you know, the matriarchs of my family, my aunts and and my mother kind of talk badly of themselves because it really doesn't set a good example for me or my cousins. And um, so I think my mom has shifted a little bit and I I think it's still deeply ingrained within her, you know, but I Mm -hmm. think the fact that she's not pushing back so much is beautiful. And my father, who also used to worry a lot about my weight and about how I was perceived and how I was too wild and too goofy. And, um, now he's starting to celebrate it, which blows my mind. And he started to pick up the guitar again to sing. And so whenever I go home, he's like, Oh, I've been working on this song. Can you help me? And this is a man who, who it was a workaholic and who, you know, is a wonderful dad. He's such a wonderful dad. He's very serious and, you know, is about work ethic and, you know, so to watch him soften and to watch him appreciate art is mind blowing to me because that was never, he never really wanted me to delve too deeply into art. So, um, mm. 
it's pretty beautiful. I'm, I'm still taken aback by it and I think I'm processing a lot of it. And my album is, is I, I've started to write some songs about that. And, um, the, so black sheep is going to be an EP, which will be a shorter, um, CD with uh, probably around five songs. And then I'll be releasing an album and, um, later in 2018. So, It'll be really nice to share some of these realizations that I'm going through as I watch them come around um, as I see that I'm I'm not going to keep quiet. I think it's pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm. I, I do, I do worry. There are legitimate concerns on my end about how China is going to receive the music and if they're even going to want to allow people to hear the song and it's, interesting because they're my people but um I don't Mm -hmm. yeah I have no idea and I've I've actually confided with my team in it and I was pretty sad one day I was like you know I feel like I don't know if I'm gonna be allowed to go there or sing there and sing this song and my management my manager is very hopeful he's like you know the younger generations will really relate you know Mm -hmm. and maybe they'll want to sing this but who knows if we'll be able to get in so Mm-hmm. That is that is to be seen. <laughs> mm. Gosh, I hope you can, and please do keep us posted because yeah. um, you know there's work to be done, and every step that you're taking is a step for millions of women across the globe. Just you know, it's a huge impact, yeah. and you may not be able to see it or feel it all at once, but, um, I can tell you just from my own experience, how it's not just about that song. It's you singing that song in your package with your history, with the lineage that you carry. It's just no accident, you know, that you're representing a whole, you know, millions and millions of women from a culture that has kept quiet. And, you know, whether you make it over there or not, I'm praying for yes, you are still <laughs> doing work for them. So thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it makes me all emotional. <laughs> I know I'm emotional too. I gotta just tell you, I'm feeling it. But and I just have so much gratitude for you, Milk. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Chantel. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this Emerging Women podcast, please subscribe and review it on iTunes and share it with your friends. When you do, it makes a huge difference in spreading this work and building this movement so that women worldwide can access these incredible conversations, tap into their own emergence, and support the rise of women globally. Also, be sure to check out the Emerging Women membership community with live sessions every month hosted by inspiring female leaders and me, founder and CEO of Emerging Women, Chantal Pirat. The membership is a hub of resources and support full of brilliant emerging women like you who are stepping into their growth and their leadership. You can join for free at EmergingWomen.com. Until next time, may your journey be inspired.